This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. Ford Sora. Paul T. Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Well, the podcast is back after a brief hiatus. Thank you for your patience. Uh, my guest for this episode is Dale Wetlofer. Dale and I started in this industry around the same time, and uh, we've taken totally different paths to get where we are today. So it was pretty interesting for me to talk to Dale about his experiences and how they formed him into the value investor he is today. One of those experiences in particular that we spend a good deal of time on is the time that he spent working with Bill Miller, a legitimate mutual fund rock star. Dale shares some of the lessons he learned over that time, and just almost two years ago, uh, Dale started his own investment management firm, Charlotte Lane Capital, uh, which is a long, short strategy that he manages today, and we also dig into how he goes about finding long ideas, short ideas, position sizing, and much, much more. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Dale Wetlofer. Hey, Dale, welcome to the show. It's really uh, fun for me to have you here. Um, you are one of a dying breed like me. Value guys who are active in the markets, and uh, it's, uh, there are not, not too many of us around these days anymore, seems like. So, yeah, well, welcome to the show. Appreciate the invitation. It's good to talk with you. Uh, I think we're pretty much the same age, and um, uh, I think we have a lot of shared experiences. And I really have a, a soft spot in my heart for uh, for Bear Stearns, uh, both the people and, and the institution. And um, East Greenberg was always very generous with uh, with his time. Yeah, you know, I was I I didn't spend a whole lot of time at Bear. I started there, but uh, yeah, Ace was you know definitely ran through the culture of the, or, the organization and. And uh, it's a shame, shame how it, it all ended up. But uh, it just goes to show that um, you know it doesn't matter who you are. You get uh, a little too overconfident in the markets, and it can come back to bite you. Um, I want to dive. You you were um, kind of been around the business world for a long time. Is it, was it your mom and dad both kind of had their hands in in uh, running different businesses or? They did. My dad was in the graphic arts uh, distribution business uh, from the day he uh, got out of college in 1959. And in the early 1980s, uh, he and my mom came up with a product idea. And my mom's uh, company uh, manufactured that. And my dad's company distributed that. And as a means of tax planning, they gave each of the uh, kids uh, shares in the company. And my siblings weren't too interested in board meetings and whatnot, but I thought it was the most interesting thing in the world. So that's where uh, I learned about, you know, corporate governance and what entrepreneurship is all about and, you know, capital allocation. And, you know, my mom really was a fantastic um, process manager in uh, in manufacturing. And that's sort of where I, I learned, you know, how uh, management of tangible processes uh, works. Interesting. Well, I, I just asked because, you know, I, obviously I follow you on Twitter and you tweet about your dad, you know, here and there. And so I, I, I assume he must have been a big influence on the way you look at business and, and that sort of stuff. So, 
Well, definitely. I, you know, my my dad was very much a great salesperson, and my mom was more the um, hard nosed realist. And so I got I got it from a couple different um, sides on how to think about business and how to pursue success in in business. So I learned a lot from from both of them. And then, so uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, uh, they weren't directly involved in you know the financial markets. Uh, how did you transition? What got you first interested in investing in finance? So I grew up thinking that I would be involved in the family business. And uh, in my early 20s, I figured out that the intellectual property edge from the manufactured product was was going away as the you know knowledge of the process uh, diffused through the, through the industry uh, the distribution side was you know getting really squeezed to you know some of the big big players and you know my dad's business wasn't that and um, so I had to make the decision that you know uh, maybe I should do something else uh, and at the time I was getting interested in the stock market and I was sitting in a uh, broker's office here in Buffalo doing my Series 7, and I was posting on The Motley Fool. And at that time, my my first stock recommendation was AOL, and it was under 1 million subs at the time. And this was, I think, 1993 into 1994. And I remember in 1995, um, the day... Netscape came out was the day Jerry Garcia died. I think it was August 1994 or five. So, you know, it's hard to believe that's 22 years ago now. Yeah. Um, and so is that what uh, you, you, so you were doing series seven and then writing on the Motley Fool. You ended up becoming an analyst for the Motley Fool. Was that shortly after that time or? It was. I was posting on the boards as a means of really, you know, teaching myself and, and talking through things. And they liked um, what I had to say. And they invited me to come down there and, and do that full time. And so basically, I took the opportunity to learn the orthodoxy of value investing. And in the late night, mid late 90s, that was, you know, not the most exciting thing around. And so you know, I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon, always been, even, you know, at the age of 25. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it, a lot of people would say, geez, you're out of step. Why are you, you know, paying attention to Warren Buffett? And um, I just, you know, that was the first, after making the typical, you know, rookie mistakes of I'm going to buy a junior gold miner and a oil company in Sudan and, you know, those things blew up. Um, you, you know, I went to, okay, well, who's the, who's the most successful operator out there and that's Warren Buffett. And so that's what lead, led me to studying, you know, that as the as the bedrock of my education and in investing. That's that's funny. I mean, you mentioned we're about the same age. I, I think I was reading the Buffett letters in the late 90s to myself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I discovered the Molly Fool shortly after that. And you know, that must have been late 90s early 2000s and and really it's a wonderful educational resource for, you know, learning to analyze financial statements and, you know, value, you know, different value investing methodologies. And, and I, I, for me, I, I just found that it was extremely valuable. There's so much information and, and uh, there on that site provided by just a number of people. One actually reminds me, one of the people who tweeted in a question for you is, is there anybody from your Motley Fool days that uh, you um, especially appreciate or respect, um, you know, what they're, what they're doing these days. 
Sure. Well, um, my uh, my friend Yishin Chang, who um, is um, essentially an executive in the financial services uh, industry, I, I hired two people, Yishin Chang, who is very successful in financial services, and a fellow named Brian Graney, who is now a partner at uh, Brown Advisory. So my track record on hiring is is pretty good. And, you know, Brian's a great, great friend. I've known him now for, uh, boy, 20 plus years. Um and Bill Mann is a terrific investor, and he was the CIO of Motley Fool Asset Management and um, just a terrific all-around uh, investor. And I think he's doing a lot of um, radio and, and uh, other things at the Motley Fool. So I would recommend people, you know, tune tune into him as often as possible. And the Gardner Brothers, you know, I mean, they're, they're very, very smart. Um, you know, David Gardner's an incredible growth investor. I mean, he's got, a, he's got it right, I think. Yeah, you know, I I think I bought a couple of their books back in the late '90s too, when those when those first came out. Um, yeah, like I said, wonderful wealth of uh, information there. And and you, so you met all these guys through your time at Motley Fool. Yeah, I joined in uh, I think it was 1996, and I was there for three and a half years. The dot com um, era was getting a little bubbly uh, when we were. You know, adding a third or fourth floor onto the building, and you know, planning a restaurant. When it wasn't a restaurant, but that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, it was a little, little too much on the back end. And I'm, yeah. there's a famous moment where, um, in a big company meeting, I, I proclaimed loudly that we were becoming like IBM, and we needed more front front line personnel. <laughs> Yeah. So I started. I started to look around and I uh, wanted to jump into you know asset management, and it turned out that I ended up not um, I don't know sixty miles north at Lake Mason Capital Management, working under Bill Miller and Lisa Rapuana. Yeah, well, I want to get to that, but before I do, it seemed like the Motley Fool was a, was a unique community back in the day. I, I haven't visited it recently. Maybe it still is, but is there anything like that uh, today? you find where there's kind of a, a, a valuable meeting of the minds and sharing of information going on? I think Twitter. I mean, I, you know, I call FinTwit the, the most functional firm I've ever worked at. It's, I mean, I, it, there's just so many different um, great points of view and you have lots of side conversations, you know, in the background on, on DM and you meet people in real life and, you know, it's a, it's a, value add community where if you contribute something to somebody's thinking they'll contribute something to yours it's pretty spectacular how many people um especially on the buy side are on twitter it is and i mean that's really why this conversation is happening i found, that's where i found you is on, on twitter right. so yeah. yeah um so then you moved to leg mason and how did you get the the gig with uh, bill miller well, it could have been straight up nepotism. Uh, the fellow that hired me at the Motley Fool had joined Bill's um, outfit, I guess, uh, a year, 16 months before that. And I was very lucky to um, get there when I did in 1999. There were maybe four, uh, four or five portfolio managers with, at the time, $25 billion under management. And I think I was uh, analyst number three at the time. So the assets to personnel... Um, you know, was, you know, really high. And so that allowed me to take on a lot of responsibilities in a different, uh, in, in many ways, um, very quickly, which was a great education. And, you know, my feet were in, you know, to the fire very quickly. There was a pretty bad credit crunch post dot com. 
um, 9-11 was, was happening. Capital markets really tightened up. And, you know, that was the first, um, you know, firing line uh, for, for me. And it worked out well. Um, but I kind of figured out a few years later, you know, maybe it wasn't my brilliance that, you know, got me to hold things down to, you know, 10% of book and one times forward earnings. We kind of got bailed out by the Fed. So, uh, you know, not to take anything away from Bill's style or, or the style that I was cultivating at, at the time, but it certainly helps to have a, an accommodative Fed when you're, you know, all about averaging down. Okay. So that, so you joined in what, 2000 then or? Late 99. Late 99. Okay. So you, through the March 2000 peak, and then, you know, most of the market held up through late 2000 and then started to roll, roll over harder after that. So you basically started there right at the tail end of that that blow off in the Nasdaq. And so yeah, that would have been a it's a fascinating time. How how was the uh, the fund handling things through that period? Well, it's really interesting. I think Bill over um probably 6 years, 7 7 years average uh realized 50 baggers and approximately on Dell and AOL. And, you know, he figured out both of those really early. Um, and, you know, a lot of value investors, uh, certainly on Dell, figured, figured it out at 10 times earnings, but they let it go at 18 times earnings. And, you know, Bill figured out the competitive position. Bill and Lisa figured out the competitive position and the, and the growth and the returns on incremental capital were such that you could hold this thing for a long time. And so, Tactically, Bill made the right call in you know getting off of those um, at uh, as as you know late late ninety nine into two thousand. So his streak of beating the S and P five hundred was unbroken from I think it was nineteen ninety one through uh, two thousand six. So he just sailed right through that period. Yeah, well, you know this this brings up a couple of great points uh, about him specifically. You know, I mean, he's received a lot of criticism from you know traditional value investors. That, hey, you, how can you call yourself a value guy when you buy things like AOL and you know or things you know that have no earnings and you know super fast growth and, and you know AOL was probably one of the few profitable companies back then. But you know, but the, uh, and by the same token, you know, value guys consistently you know try and buy something under value, it gets fully valued, and it's time to sell it. I mean, that's the Seth Klarman you know kind of gospel. Uh, what, how does he, you know, um, I guess justify or uh, how is his process? I, what is it that I guess you saw, he saw the fact that this thing's going to keep growing and the intrinsic value is going to grow along with it. What is it about that and that process that separates him from other value investors? Well, you know, I've long said that Bill's actually a better growth investor than a, than a value investor, um, yeah. and that's bringing up the distinction without a difference. Um, as Bill has said, and as you'll read, you know, John Burr Williams' books, and really all of the investors that I appreciate, value is the NPV of all of the cash an investor can take out of a corporation over its life. Value is not low PE. It's not low price to book. It's not a, you know, widespread. Um, that's, those are coincident with value oftentimes, but those are really heuristics. Um, you know, lots of times a, a company at uh, 10 times earnings is a complete value trap, which is where I get my name on, on Twitter. And, um, you know, lots of times a company trading at 50 times earnings can, can be a value. Uh, so that's how, that's how we approached it in our, 
uh, eclectic way. I'm, I'm putting together a portmanteau there of uh, eclectic and electric, (laughs) if I may be so bold. Um, You know, that's, Bill was unafraid of approaching things like that. And, you know, when I look at my portfolio, I've got pretty nasty growth, um, you know, pretty nasty value next to growth in the portfolio. And on the short side, I have the same thing because I just, uh, we looked at value differently than the, the style box definition of value would have it. Yeah. Well, I absolutely agree. There, there really shouldn't be a distinction between growth and value. Growth is just one of the components in assessing the value uh, of, a, of a business. I think most investors that consider themselves growth investors are really just momentum investors, though. You know, um, so you know. But to me, that's that's um, that's an interesting uh, thing to to look at about uh, you know, investing in terms of. Uh, owning things that um, you know, there is a. It's a very difficult, and this is maybe you know why a lot of value investors go wrong. Is you know Buffett says, "Where's this company going to be in ten years?" And if you can't determine that, it's very difficult to assess that value. And so I think that's where a lot of guys go. Okay, it's fairly valued today. I don't know where it's going to be in ten years. Uh, you know, I, I think you said something something about Bill where he could see maybe a. Uh, you know, a, a little more clarity in that ten-year picture than, than most guys. Is that a fair, fair thing to say? You know, I was at a friend's block party on Saturday, and I was talking to um, an artist um, that lives on his block, and uh, her name is Olga, and she's she's eighty-five and really bright um, and loves to talk about investing. And she was saying how disappointed she was in Whole Foods selling out to to Amazon. And I said, well, you know, Jeff Bezos, the day after that, or the day it closed, they dropped the price of a lot of products by, you know, 25%. And lo and behold, the, you know, footfall in the stores goes up something like, you know, 20% uh, immediately. Um, you have to think about problems in a non-linear linear way. And I think investing is a very creative um, undertaking when you're looking out 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And I think that's where Bill, you know, given his really wide uh, variety of interests and uh, agility um, to uh, agility in, in moving from one discipline to the other with with great dexterity. Um, he's very creative in thinking about what may happen over the next 10 years, 20 years, and what may not happen. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about with uh, certainly with long uh, runway growth companies like an Amazon. I mean, Bill, you know, like Mason was, you know, top three holder uh, behind uh, Bezos, uh, uh, IPO investor in uh, in Google. Uh, certainly, AOL was a you know highly differentiated call. So, you know, it takes um, looking down the road 10, 15, 20 years. The other thing, though, is when you look at Amazon and you do a DCF of Amazon, and let's say your cost of capital, your WAC, is 8%, that perforce means that they are reinvesting the free cash flow that you project as an investor at an 8% IRR. So you're, you're taking it out and you're discounted at 8%. You can take an alternate line in a DCF and you can say, okay, I'm the mortal that can only see this explicit opportunity, but Jeff Bezos is certainly you know better than Dale Wetlaufer at finding great businesses to invest in. What if he can invest those free cash flows that I'm forecasting at an internal rate of return of 
So that's Bill, um, Bill Ackman has tried to get to this uh, with platform value calculation. That's how, mm-hmm. that's how I look at it. When you break the circularity of the the DCF via that whack line. Interesting. You know, for me, I use a very simplified, you know, discounted cash flow model where I only forecast like three years worth of earnings and then a terminal valuation. And that, you know, that's because I don't have that ability to kind of make those assumptions far farther into the future. So is Amazon um, a company that you own currently or? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, okay. I peeled, so, I, peeled it, I peeled it back a little bit, um, you know, too, too early, but um, it is, you know, up in the top half of the long book. Okay. And now this actually gets into something, you know, uh, that I, I get asked all the time and it came in on Twitter a couple of times. How, how do you look at position sizing for something <laughs> like Amazon? And I mean, sure. you don't have to go into obviously the specific details, but this is something I get asked all the time. You know, it seems to me that, you know, Bill and, and, um, the fund was not as focused as kind of a Buffett style, but uh, you go ahead and tell me sure. uh, you know, your knowledge of that. So there are a couple of different dimensions to sizing Amazon, and I'll, and I'll go to, or, or any position within the portfolio, I'll go to the most general statement that, <clears throat> um, you know, the, the more upside in a position, the bigger the position should be. Now, you know, that's the Kelly criterion where you take your confidence in the thing and, and your upside downside and, and you size appropriately. And that's been kind of the, you know, I guess standard answer in the industry for the last 10 years. Now, I worked with a brilliant quant at, uh, at Leg Mason Capital Management, Arturo Rodriguez, uh, who has a firm called Simplexity. And he did a modified, um, Kelly where he looked at 18 different um, GIX Level 4 or GIX Level 3 um, industry return distributions monthly over 60 years. And what he found was there are three basic shapes of return distributions. There's left skew, which is like banking is, um, is typical. So when a bank runs, you know, gets to one and a half ROA, their returns to scale are unitary after, after that. So there's a, there's kind of a wall as to, you know, you get to 200% of book and it's done. But there's a lot of failures that, you know, things go, you know, get diluted at 10% of book. They go, they go bust, um, far more often than, than you would like. And then you have a log normal distribution. And I would say like Brown Foreman, which makes Jack Daniels, uh, uh, not bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, that has a pretty even distribution. Um, you know, some of the times it's, you know, at uh, 14 times earnings, some of the times it's at 25 times earnings. And these things rarely go, you know, go bust. And, you know, they rarely give you runs of 50%, you know, compounded over, over, you know, 10 years. And then you've got a Pareto distribution. And that's something like a, let's say, Intel or um, application software, or even something like a Tesla, where you have a, uh, a large number of failures. And, and uh, this happens often. And you have a small num- smaller number of successes, but some of the successes are ridiculous, you know, thousand bagger moonshots, and that makes up for the um, you know the high number of of failures. And so I tried to balance the book. I'm, you know, I don't try to make it 
beta neutral or distribution neutral, but I pay attention to those dis- distributions. And so, you know, when I look at, you know, some of my mistakes in, in investing, um, it'd be averaging down companies with a left tail distribution. That's a good way to consume capital and, and ruin a track record. You have to be very careful about how you average those down. And so when you look at Paul Tudor Jones says losers average losers and Bill Miller says lowest average cost wins. <clears throat> I think, I think the truth lies in between there. I think, you know, for left, for left tail, um, you know, left skew distributions and for Pareto distributions, you have to be careful about how, how you average those. And then, you know, finally, when I have Amazon in the long book, that gives me latitude to short things like Tesla. Which I'll go ahead and say it. Um, those those yeah. things move, you know, together. PayPal and and Amazon, which I'm long, um, move together with uh, with Tesla. And I also have a, a video distribution platform on the short side of the book. And those all move together. So, and there's a reason for that. It's not just money so, flow, but it's 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 the it's the the distribution that attaches to this these groups. Okay, so you look at things like leverage and you know volatility in the underlying business in terms of averaging down and position sizing. That's um, that's interesting to me because I have I haven't um, heard that too much before, and that's great advice I think to people who are looking to understand how to size positions in their own you know managing their own money. You know, if you have a very conservative, you know, low risk, uh, low business risk type of uh, investment, like you said, Brown Foreman is a great example. Whiskey maker, I've been making Jack Daniels forever, and very little underlying volatility in the in the business. And as long as they don't leverage the balance sheet up like incredibly way too far, that probably the risk of them going out of business is very small. So you can actually position that more aggressively. Um, now, so do you in in the long side of the portfolio? What do, what do you have? You know, forty, fifty names, something like that. Uh, Eighteen right Much now. L- 18. Okay, so it is more focused. Mm-hmm. It yep. is more focused. It's, yeah, and so for me, I, I, I lean that way too, um, simply you know, because Warren Buffett uh, you know, wrote, you know, why add money to your 30, 40th favorite name when you can add more money to your first favorite name? And, and so that's kind of one of the ways I, I look at things. Is, is, that, uh, is that how Miller did it too? Is it more more focused approach? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I would say the top ten positions in the fund were always uh, probably close to forty to fifty percent uh, of the fund, and so you know you have things that get demoted through <laughs> through drawdown. Um, he wasn't really a starter position guy, um, but uh, that's just kind of the way it works. So my, my long short port- portfolios have always looked uh, barbelled, and the first fund that I ran, um, you know, we had a maximum of sixteen positions. It was a sleeve of a 100-position Russell 1000 portfolio. So I had 16 maximum slots, and I would run generally uh, 12 to 13 to 14 positions, and the top position would be anywhere from 7% to 12.5%, 13%. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've always felt comfortable that way. I think 
a lot of newer, um, you know, hedge funds, uh, separate account strategies, people are really taking it to an extreme and going down to like six, seven positions. And I don't think that's an institutional product. I mean, it, it might work, you know, um, for, uh, you know, for high net worth individuals and, and some certainly allocators, but I don't think that's quite institutional. But I, I know quantitatively that the incremental benefits uh, of diversification start to drop off after, you know, 16, 17, 20 positions. Yeah. And so you have about the same number on the short side? Well, well, the short, yeah, the short side is a little more, uh, is a little more fractional. I've got uh, right now 32 positions. Uh, yeah. But I've, so <laughs> right now I've got an 18 percent, almost 20 percent short position in the um, in the spy in the spider. Um, yeah, it's a lot easier to. <laughs> I think it's a lot uh, makes a lot of sense to be more diversified on the short side for sure. Well, um, you so know, you have, I'm okay, I'm okay with I'm okay with the salience um, there, but um, I've been pretty cold <clears throat> for the last 18 months on the short side and. George Soros used to take um, capital away from portfolio managers, especially if they were getting aggressive and trying to make it back. And that's something I'm definitely not making. I'm not doing, but I'm just kind of taking capital away from myself in an active management um, uh, approach and just giving the index a little more of the, the capital. Uh, just because, yeah. Well, the market's gone straight up since January 2016 and taken a lot of stuff, you know, highly leveraged companies is kind of, you know, the stuff I would focus more on on the, on the short side, things that look like they could probably go out of business in a downturn. And those things have just rallied so hard in the last, I don't know, six, six, 12 months since the election. Um, is that those kind of the things that you're, you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the the things that have really been, you know, um, a bit of a problem for me are industrials. Um, mm-hmm. I think that People believe that a new cycle is coming and it's going to be great, but I, I don't see that given that we have smushed two cycles into the last 15 years. And normally a cycle within like earth moving equipment from peak to peak, trough to trough isn't anywhere from 15 to 30 years. And so, you know, we had a, a long run from essentially the late 70s, early 80s, 85 to 2001 or so, where CAT didn't do a whole heck of a lot, and, and nor did energy. And then, you know, I mean, you have capital leaves the industry and you have consolidation, whatever, and you have a natural cycle, and that's the way it should look. And... You know, the cycle ended in, in 08, and along comes quantitative easing, which pulls forward investment demand, and you've got the Belt and Road build out, and, and China, you know, gunning its GDP from whatever it is, $3 trillion to now $13 trillion. Uh, you know, I mean, we've smushed two cycles into a very short period of time. And I don't think, you know, left to its druthers, the, like the earth moving equipment industry is going to go anywhere for 15 years until the next cycle starts. So, you know, in the, in the short term, I'm wrong. Absolutely. Um, but I'm fine with that. I mean, I'm very comfortable with, with drawdowns, especially, you know, getting back to what I was saying about distributions. This isn't, you know, let's say our short PayPal and, uh, you know, this, it gets away from me and it makes the jump into hyperspace where it goes from 400 billion in payments, uh, uh, TPV to 4 trillion. Like that's the sort of thing that kills you in shorting. I'm right. perfectly fine with cat 
you know, going up 50% or 30, whatever it is, 30% on me. Perfectly fine with that. And, and that's because it's positioned, you know, such that you can add to it or, you, I mean, actually you don't need to. When a short goes against you, it's kind of adding naturally <laughs> to it as, it as it goes against you. Yeah, yeah but, right. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, I'm naturally averaging it at a, at a pretty slow rate, the rate at which it's going up. Um, it's moving into the right tail of its distribution. So the ride from the right tail to the center of the distribution would be terrific. And then the ride from the right tail to the left tail of the distribution would be super fantastic. And, you know, people say, well, you can only make 100% on a short. Well, nonsense. You can always average a short as it goes down and monetize it, you know, over and over again. And and so for me, when I when I hear you saying all this, I, I just start thinking about, you know, where we are in the credit cycle. Is that something that that uh, that factors into your analysis you think about a lot? Sure. You know, I mean, I'm the sort of macro investor that looks at, or I'm the sort of investor that looks at very big macro trends. So, where we are in the credit cycle, what does return on capital for the S&P 500 or, or sectors look like? What does the earth moving cycle look like? And, you know, if you look at earth moving equipment sales from the 1950s through today, and you, and you look at that versus, uh, world population or global gross economic output, uh, you use a, a slow moving denominator. The cycles are really identifiable. I mean, these things are very, very extended. So. You know, when I look at something like a PACAR, which is a fantastic manufacturer of Class 8 trucks in the United States, you have to pay attention to the truck cycle. I mean, there's just no getting around it. One of the things that I find perplexing is, you know, it's almost... It's almost a sin within certain um, groups to look at macro. But when you think about an equity, a U.S. equity, the U.S. market is a derivative of the global economy. An industry is a derivative of the U.S. economy. A company is a derivative of the industry. And equity is a derivative of the entire capital structure of that firm. So you've got a quadruple lever derivative. Why wouldn't you be paying attention to everything above you in the capital stack and in the, you know, entire ecosystem? It's complex, sure. One thing I don't do is, you know, a lot of investors who pay attention to macro think that they understand every little button and knob on the, you know, nuclear plant power panel. I don't know how, you know, <laughs> I'm a simple yeah. guy on, in, in those terms. I mean, I pay attention to some really, really big things, and I'm interested to hear how people explain things, but I don't pretend to know how, you know, what every little button does. I mean, I pay attention to some big, big, you know, the tachometer and the speedometer, basically. Yeah. And so those are, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, is it truck tonnage? Is that one of the things, the indicators that you follow closely or? Yeah, I remember the first time I met with uh, Ed Wolf, um, who was a bear guy and went on a, on his own. And this is maybe, I don't know, '04 or so. And I was I've been a lifelong generalist, and um, I just took the meeting because I would kind of take any meeting because I could always learn something. And he started to tell me about you know car loadings and truck tonnage, and I was like. Wow, man! How, why haven't I not been paying attention to this stuff before? 
Because, you know, for material goods moving through the economy, you know, you can't trust, you can't truck nursing services or, you know, other things, uh, you know, service-based things or software. But, you know, still, I think half of the... the business cycle is still industrial production and it's the old old Dow theory, right? I mean, if industrials are on fire, you should be able to see it in the transports, right? Very, very much. And I mean, that's kind of the incremental mover, you know, from... From 05 down to 08 and, you know, from, you know, 2010 forward. And I think, you know, coming around the bend now, the high tonnage elements of the economy, those being auto production and, and home building, auto production, auto sales are like 2008, like early 2008. They were really plummeting. And they were, they were plummeting before um, Hurricane Harvey hit, uh, hit Houston. And I think, I think the housing market is, uh, you know, home building is going to be done pretty soon, too. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to crash, but it's, I think it's kind of done. And, and those are two, I mean, ma- major segments. Um, why is, uh, why, and I, you know, that's something I've been watching, too, is that, you know, auto, auto production, auto sales, and the figures are nasty, <laughs> especially for, you know, GM and Ford. Um, why is really, why do you think nobody's really paying attention to this right now? Because to me, it seems like it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. I don't know. You know, I mean, Hurricane Harvey made landfall in southern Texas, I think, on the 25th of of August. And I was reading something this morning that said, um, you know, there's basically uh, tying the economic weakness in August to the hurricane. Well, I mean, I don't think we've seen anything yet on that score. And, you know, auto sales were down an annualized 600,000 in in August. That more than makes, you know, the, the cars lost in Harvey don't do not make that up. Maybe just make that up. But I think a lot of people don't have adequate uh, insurance coverage on their homes. And I don't think necessarily people are going to run out and use their insurance checks to replace their cars. Uh, you know, there are different modalities that are becoming available. Um, and really, I mean, do you choose between your home and your car? I think it's pretty simple for, for a lot of people. I mean, it's time yeah. to get creative on how you budget. Which is, which is, you know, a terrible tragedy for the folks going through it. But, you know, from a big picture perspective, it seems like the attitude right now, the consensus is that, oh, the rebuilding is going to be great for the economy uh, without looking at the costs that have already been incurred. Um, it's, I guess, is that the age old, you know, um, economic adage about the, you know, the broken window and the tailor's shop and Right. Well, that's, you know, great for the economy because it's got to replace that window. Well, what about the lost, you know, uh, the, the added uh, expense, you know, for him this quarter? It's, uh, you know, completely offset. So no, totally. it really is whatever boon to the economy it is. It's also a, you know, bane to somebody else's business existence. So, um, and and so what, what are your thoughts generally about the hurricane? Do you think it's, uh, it is that net economic just neutral, or do you think it's going to to um, uh, obviously people are using it as an excuse right now? Oh yeah, the numbers are going to be poor because of the, the pair of hurricanes. But uh, well, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts about it? Well, I think it's a net negative. I mean, so first of all, it doesn't improve the wealth of the country to improve, to replace what was lost. Um, now, if you're getting a superior home that gives you lower total cost of ownership in the future and more enjoying hedonic pleasure, okay, fine. But, you know, that money's got to come from somewhere. And where it's going to come from is 
deferred or just completely canceled consumption and um, and other investment spending. First of all, second of all, you know the insurance coverage um, for flooding in in Houston is completely inadequate. Third, I don't think the uh, the GDP or uh, gross output of Houston will be back to potential for many, many, many quarters. I mean, you look at the last two weeks and 50,000, 60,000 people a week have filed uh, uh, initial unemployment claims in, in Texas. I think this is going to be a bad credit event regionally and, so and this, perhaps nationally. So the, do you think this could be the... Um you know, the catalyst for the end of this uh, this wonderful expansion that we've seen for however many years. Well, you know, I mean, I wrote I wrote about um, as the hurricane was happening how the 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco preceded by about uh, 15 months and I think perhaps catalyzed the uh, Knickerbocker Bank failure in the panic of 1907 in New York. There was, you know, still an agrarian economy and, you know, um, correspondent, uh, I forget what the word is, for outlying banks across the country. Um, and, you know, a lot of people made the point, well, we're still in the gold standard. So, yeah, that's that's completely true. I mean, we had a, you know, inelastic um, money supply. I don't know. Um, and I, you know, a lot of people, I think, asked when you put out, um, you know, call for questions, well, why has Dale been so wrong? Well, you know, I mean, I I, ha- I have been wrong, um, you know, full stop on that. But I'm sort of indifferent um, as to whether the market closes the gap between where it is now and what I see as fair value at, at 1800 whether it does that in a nanosecond or two years or, or three years. It would be commercially convenient for me if it would do it in a nanosecond. But, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I think the embedded return here uh, on the market looking out over over five, six years is, is zero real. And the funny thing is, I mean, you, you often will post um, – Hussman's um, analyses, I get to the exact same numbers in a completely different way, but I get to the exact same numbers. I mean, I, well, I that's think... What I, that's what I wanted to ask is how... So um, how do you come up with the, the fair value number that uh, that you're looking at? I'm a DCF guy, so I do it via right, DCF. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you just run a DCF. And then... But the underlying... To me, the underlying assumptions on the DCF, we have to assume the lowest growth rate, you know, uh, far lower than... Anything we've seen, you know, historically, um, you know, for for earnings growth, uh, I think. I mean, would you make that assumption? Well, you know, I've looked at this before, um, and one of my favorite uh, papers is titled "What Risk Premium Is Normal" by uh, Robert Knott and Peter Bernstein, and they explain from 1871 through 1999 the real EPS growth rate of the market was 1.7 percent. And I chopped up that period and I updated it to 2016. Every 10, 15, and 20-year slice of the market uh, of our economic history from 1871 forward, that 1.7% is almost like a law that was written somewhere, you know, in nature that that's the natural rate of growth for the, for the S&P 500 EPS. Now, if there were not bad M&A and not um, dilution of interests, 
uh, owners' interests by management and and bad boards, um, the the growth, the potential growth rate of EPS would be something like three percent uh, over over time. But there's there's friction in you know within the market from bad M and A and from stock option dilution, and then you have friction from companies that are not in the index that are innovating that are taking share and you know the profit pool from companies that are, are in the index so that 1.7% is a fantastic base rate i mean it's a it's a very good starting point and that's very, that's that's a huge part of my process as well as understanding what base rates are i mean you can't just pick numbers out of the air because they feel good uh you know you can you can find base rates on on things i mean uh, it's just i mean there's so many data out there to to analyze yeah and that and i think is that from the schiller data the earnings um number is that from the paper that you mentioned because um, yeah, I looked at the Schiller yeah. data, and, and you know, people have you know basically select time periods that support their own thesis, right? <laughs> so yeah, sure. you select yeah. an earnings growth period. And, oh yeah, average, you know, real growth was you know three and a half percent or four and a half percent. You know, right. and that's what we should assume going forward. And I think that's a you know, or you know, we need to cut out all that the earnings growth during the Great Depression because that's never going to happen again. And so, right, you know, I bet when you just look at the entire data, I think it does. Yeah, it is right around one point seven or something real. Right. Um, for yeah. The Schiller data. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think Schiller uses the Cowles um, Commission um, data, and uh, okay. I know Yardeni uses it. So um, the great thing about Schiller is he's got that wonderful spreadsheet that you know is updated all the all the time that I, I use as a base for for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, and I'll include a link to that when I put up a post for the, the show notes for this. Um, I'm glad that you brought up uh, was it the earthquake? You know the the history. I think um, so few people have an understanding of you know market history, and there's so many things. Now, I believe that Mark Twain. It's not a true saying of his, but you know history does rhyme, even though it doesn't repeat. And there's a lot to be learned from from those types of things. And uh, so you shared that uh, on Twitter, and I mean, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, do you feel like that's uh, this is a similar situation to that? Then I know you said we're not on the gold standard today, but you know if you look at the growth in the money supply currently, you know, we might as well be almost. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with what's going on. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a doomsayer that says, you know, this and that is going to lead to a crash. But I was listening to Hugh Hendry on the Macro Voices podcast uh, the other day, and he closed his fund. And he was drawing an analogy um, to between today's market and the 1960s. So I posted on Twitter, I lined up, I don't know, 15 different data series. And I compared the, you know, 1960s with, with today. So the 1960s real GDP um, on average was going was growing 4.7 percent. We're growing 2.2 percent. Real DPI was growing 4.7 percent again. We're growing at 1.2 percent. Real DPI x personal current transfer receipts, which is a very important thing to think about because the you know the classic uh, C plus I plus G plus net X equals GDP calculation. I remember the first time this was mentioned to me in, you know, Econ 101, and the professor started talking about transfer payments. I'm like, what do you mean transfer? Like, why isn't that in the government account? Well, because that goes over to consumption, and it's also counted in income. So, you know, um, 80 years ago, 
uh, personal current transfer receipts were only 7% of disposable, uh, excuse me, in the 1960s. Personal current transfer receipts, which is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, essentially, um, was 7% of disposable personal income. It's 20% today. That's a huge, like, yeah. you, I mean, you got to look at the, the trends adjusting for that. So, um, you know, another series is household liabilities to adjusted income, as, as I just explained before, DPI oh, minus BCTR. Yeah. 63% in the 1960s. It's 113% today. Federal government liabilities uh, to household income adjusted, 55% in the 1960s, 118% today. And by the way, I mean, ultimately, it's the household so sector that's, a, that's responsible for this, right? Right. And so what was it? What was it? Where did he see the parallels? I mean, obviously, I, you know, I've, I've seen nifty 50 parallels, you know, with the FANG stocks and those types of things. I mean, maybe, you know, there's some market parallels, but you're right. The underlying economics is far different than it was back then. What were the parallels that he was trying so to make? So if you want to look at, I'm not, I'm not sure entirely, but like the, the trailing 12-month uh, PE on the S&P 500 is similar. The, the Cape 10, which is the you know, classic Schiller Cape, is much, much higher. It's 28 times today versus 21 uh, for uh, the period of 1960s. <clears throat> uh, the Cape 5 is 25 times versus 20. Um, the S&P 500 dividend yield is 120 basis points lower. Uh, now, real uh, S&P 500 uh, EPS growth is now 9% today versus 4% in the 1960s, but that's really juiced by you know energy coming around the bend. But you know, I mean, inflation is lower. Uh, you know, real 10-year yields are are lower. BAA yield is lower today. BAA spread is actually higher. I mean, you, you can look at the valuations and they seem somewhat similar, but guess what the, you know, 10 year forward S&P 500 real return was from, you know, on average, uh, in the 1960s, it was zero. And from yeah. 1965 forward, it was negative 2.7%. That's your 10 year real return. <laughs> Well, that that period from the mid to late sixties to the you know eighty one eighty two was just you know I mean that's why it takes something like that to get the death of equities you know business we cover that marks the bottom in eighty one or whatever but uh, um, maybe you know he's looking at looking for and I, I think I read something about this on Twitter looking for a pickup in inflation that maybe would precipitate a seventy three seventy four style you know bear market is that. Is that you know, maybe maybe he was being um, sub rosa about it, but it didn't seem like he was drawing a bearish conclusion about it. But interesting, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, well, you mentioned before we started recording that you're working on a systematic um, investment uh, process. It, it sounds uh, fascinating. Can you tell me what what that's about? Sure. So a mutual friend um, put me together with a fellow named David Van Adelsberg, who is a um, uh, financial services entrepreneur, um, kind of a wide-ranging entrepreneur in Philadelphia, uh, as well as with um, behavioral economist Dan Ariely, um, who uh, I think everybody who studied behavioral finance um, knows. And the idea was, could we look at human behavior in the workplace and use that as a useful input 
into forecasting excess return, both positive and negative, um, from, from that point forward. So we've been spending the last 10 months um, gathering proprietary databases and putting together behavioral hypotheses that are not, we're not just spraying the database with every known st- statistical technique. We're coming up with hypotheses as to if a bunch of people say this in the workplace, does that mean the stock is a buy or could we short it? Um, and we've actually come up with some fantastic back tests. Um, you know, and <laughs> we've beaten these data so, up uh, as much as possible. Yeah. So where does the data come from? What people say in the workplace? What what is the source of the data? So um, various proprietary um, human resources um, surveys, and we are going to be developing our own um, data uh, to enrich the uh, the data set. We ha- we think we have uh, generalized hypotheses that when we have um, even better data, will improve our results even more. Geez, that that to me is. Fascinating. It's one of the things I feel like I try to do on a, a week by week basis, but it's not necessarily what people are saying in the workplace. It's uh, kind of what's reflected in the media. And, and one thing that I'm noticing now, I think a lot of people are starting to notice, but the, not necessarily reflected in the markets is the uh, there's a lot of, um, I think, the sentiment towards uh, the fangs and maybe most particularly Facebook and Google seems to be shifting towards more of a antitrust uh, or regulatory type of environment. Um, And I tweeted an article today from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. It seems to me that that sentiment is very, very clearly shifting towards, oh, you know what, they have all our data and we're okay with it, to hmm, maybe maybe we're not okay with it. And uh, I think that's a fascinating just sentiment shift that I'm witnessing. But if you're finding a way to to quantitate, quanti- um, you know, quantify that, and 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 uh, that would be very interesting to see what you guys come up with. Are you guys going to be um, releasing some of that information? I mean, your, your results here. Um, so I know we'll be doing white papers on it, and we are very near a uh, a product. And there are a number of different products that um, that uh, we're thinking about um, rolling out in you know various various forms. Um, there's no reason why this couldn't extend to the credit market. Um, if we have a way of avoiding blowups, you know that's what like high yield portfolios are all about. You know, I mean, if you minimize the default rate and severity of default within a portfolio, you can you know actually actually do well. So you see, you know, I mean, for instance, you said Facebook. Like, let's say you polled everyone at Facebook today, and everyone said, "Oh, it's great. You know, we're all so happy." Well, you know what? Guess what? The market knows that. You know, that's that's no secret that right. things are going well right. there. But what if you're seeing, you know, an interesting data signature of unhappiness emerging? Uh, you know, that's valuable information. So, yeah. um, again, it all goes down to it all comes down to behavioral analysis um, and, and real, you know, scientific method. And ultimately, you know, companies are groups of people. And what we found is, I'll draw a sports analogy. So there are some hockey teams or European uh, football teams or American football teams that it's a bunch of grinders without a whole lot of stars. Sometimes those company, uh, those entities will outperform other entities that, you know, it, there's, 
there's divisiveness and there's like one or two stars or locker room cancers. You know, we have a way of finding the muckers and grinders that all know how to pull on the, you know, oars, you know, at the same time, in the same direction. You can see that in, in how people describe themselves in their environment. Well, I love the sports analogy. I'm a huge hockey fan, and uh, hockey is definitely one of those sports where you have a superstar who's not a team player and it doesn't help you very much come playoff time. Um, but speaking of another sport, I think, are you, are you a golfer? <laughs> uh, yeah, misspent youth. I'm not golfing a whole lot these days, but I, I was privileged <laughs> to be around a lot of good golf growing up. You know, yeah, I, I'm not playing as much golf these days as I have in, in, in recent years, but I love hearing from investors and their hobbies and some of the parallels that they find or what you know they learn you know mark yusko talked about i think fly fishing and how that's so valuable to him to just calm his mind and focus on one thing and and, uh um is there anything about golf that uh has helped you become a better investor sure yeah my you know it's um i would go around with my dad um on you know saturdays and, and sundays and he would discuss with me course management and you know when you're when you're off how to miss small and how to look for a bailout area if you miss the green you don't want to be you know over this green you'd prefer to be in this bunker um you know you're uh you know if you get stuck in the high grass go out sideways don't try to take a three iron out remember jean vandeveld in the british open Yes, of course. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's so terrible because yeah. he hits, you know, he's whatever, five strokes ahead and he puts it in the heather and then he tries to hit a three iron out of the heather and he ends it up in another mm-hmm. bad situation. He could still go out sideways and get, you know, get down in three and win by like a stroke or two. And it was just this compounding of errors. And I caddied for my dad in the, it was either the 1990 or 1991 senior open and he missed the cut by two because um, he was an amateur golfer lifelong amateur golfer and he was running a business at the time and he he missed like half the fairways in that tournament which is you know death in a usga Amazing. tournament yeah he was yeah. getting up and down from from everywhere and that was his <clears throat> risk management strategy was you know if you're gonna make a mistake don't make it deadly and don't compound it don't try to get it all back yeah no i've played some tough courses i think a few years ago, I played Bay Hill, Arnie's course down in Florida, and the grass, the rough was growing out so deep, you could lose your ball at like a foot off the fairway. Mm-hmm. And whenever you did find it, it was just take your medicine and try and put it back in the fairway. Right. Because if you try and do anything more than that, you just make it make it worse. But um, yeah, no, golf is, golf is a sport for me that I'm always finding parallels to investing. And it also teaches me, you know, about myself a lot, how you handle adversity on the golf course and, and those types of things can also be valuable but um anyhow well dale thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate being able to pick your brain it's been really enjoyable for me um where can people who want to keep up with you and your ideas and thoughts where can they find you well twitter is my office so my my dms are open uh and i have a lot of conversations going uh, throughout the day so that's uh that's a good way to uh, get me and uh you know i post snippets for my letters and and whatnot so i try to keep it buttoned up on distribution list but i'm always around really and on twitter it's at uh value trap 13 at value trap 13 at value trap 13 perfect okay yeah thanks again for doing this it's been really enjoyable and and uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon enjoyed it thank you very much jesse 
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Again, for notes, links, and all kinds of other stuff related to our conversation, visit thefelderreport.com forward slash podcast. If you're really enjoying the show, do me a favor and rate it on iTunes or just forward it, share it with somebody you think might like it. Uh, I'm truly grateful for all of your support. And until next time, buy low, sell high. staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.